Greetings to everyone around the world, and thank you for joining me on this special edition of Veritas Radio. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. Ten years ago, what you're about to hear was a truth that was convenient to ignore. But in light of recent events and media coverage of this scandal, ready or not, we have to face the reality. As a parent, I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt, we can no longer afford to turn a blind eye. As usual, if you want to listen to this entire interview and all of our material, all you have to do is go to VeritasRadio.com and join the Veritas family. You'll receive your login immediately. And if not, it's because your ISP house was blocked. Just send us an email and we'll take care of you. But why this out-of-schedule Veritas episode, you ask? Because it's absolutely necessary. Let me give you some background. Almost 10 years ago, I conducted an interview that to this day, those who dare to listen to it continue writing to me saying they had no idea of what was and is still happening all around us. But you know, so-called professionals are advocating to label pedophilia as a sexual orientation or mental disorder and not a crime? Remember, in order to be effective, truth must penetrate like an arrow, and that is likely to hurt. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, roughly 800,000 children are reported missing each year in the United States. That's roughly 2,000 per day. By the way, I don't believe for a minute that Jeffrey Epstein died. This is just my humble opinion. I strongly believe that Epstein, being that he was a spy for a foreign government, knew exactly how to cover himself. Just like you will hear on the following interview, people of power are usually subverted so they can be used later. If Epstein had the holy grail when it comes to information about the most powerful members of government and the private sector, in essence, the world's elite, I am willing to guarantee he had a dozen or so dead man switches in the event he went to prison or died. Cameras on his prison cell were turned off. He was taken off suicide watch, and the guard in charge fell asleep. I believe he died as much as I believe Osama bin Laden was buried in the Arabian Sea. All it takes is for another false flag to occur to distract the population from Epstein and company. In the meantime, we'll leave this episode here for you. You can no longer afford to ignore the facts. Sorry for the long intro, but I had to set the stage for you. Thank you. Tonight, Veritas steps into uncharted territory with our special guest, Nick Bryant. My name is Nick Bryant, and I'm the author of The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. The book is about an interstate pedophile network that flew children from coast to coast and pandered them to the rich and powerful. The ring was nearly exposed in 1990, but its uncovering had the potential to produce seismic political aftershocks. So the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Secret Service went into a full court press to immaculately cover up the scandal. I've spoken to several of the victims who were part of this pedophile network, and they've all conveyed horrific tales of abuse and betrayal. Unfortunately, the very officials that have pledged to protect children from the depravity of evil men were the very officials who covered this pedophile network up. 
When I started shopping this story around, I was met with tremendous amounts of skepticism. And finally, one day I told an editor that if a journalist came to him in 1965 and told him that Jagger Hoover was a closet homosexual and he was blackmailing Martin Luther King, the editor would have laughed the journalist right out of his office. There are some stories that are just so implausible and so exquisitely covered up that they can only be captured through a post-mortem. And this is one of those stories. Boys Town was supposed to help us, not destroy us. What's wrong with them? Well, they have to pick on kids. He took my dignity away. He hurt my self-esteem, my self-pride. I put needles in my arm every fucking day. I drink every day just to hide it. Larry King was the facilitator. That was the man that was in charge. I mean, we flew with him on the trips, had flown to Chicago, was in a hotel room. I was dressed in a negligee. There were, I believe, prominent men, a lot of young boys at this hotel performing certain things sexually with the other men and men ejaculated or masturbated in front of me. All the kids that I've talked to discussed that they were flown around uh, on small planes and I have hundreds of receipts. This one is going to Washington DC. He would fly us to uh, nice places or people's houses. There would be gentlemen there they would like things done to them sexually, or they would like to do things to me sexually. Some of the parties, when they started off, were straight political-type parties with no sex. So you were in the White House? Yes. How did you gain access? Well, I came down with uh, Larry King. What and time of night? It was usually around uh, midnight, and it was kind of a, a gift for our services that we were doing. And then when some of the men had left, some of the politicians had left, the ones that had planned on engaging in some type of sexual activity, that would come after the party. Heat. Heat things, hot things, you know, poked at you and stuck in you. You know, fruit, squash, you know, huge squash, you know, that big around, you know, stuck into you, into your ass, you know. You know, and they made us stand there naked and touch each other while you light cigarettes and as soon as you get burning, you just drop them down between your arms and, you know, let it, let it burn. You know, it's on film someplace. They treated the allegations that I made about the people who abused me almost like a joke. For some reason, they had to send a signal to every kid who was a potential witness. A signal so loud and clear, if you dare to come forward, if you dare to talk, watch what happens. The anxiety level is almost unbearable at times. I think his civil rights have been violated unbelievably. I feel so bad about it because what they made me do. These are all the people I've looked for. No one really cares about them. These are throwaway kids. It's a web of intrigue that starts at our Holy of Holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, the worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. This is not your traditional Veritas show. We not only seek the truth, but also justice. 
Nick Bryant's writing has recurrently focused on the plight of disadvantaged children in the United States, and he's been published in numerous national journals, including the Journal of Professional Ethics, Journal of Applied Developmental Psychology, Journal of Social Distress and Homelessness, Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Underserved, and Journal of School Health. He's the co-author of America's Children, Triumph of Tragedy, Addressing the Medical and Developmental Problems of Lower Socioeconomic Children in America. His mainstream and investigative journalism has been featured in Gear, Playboy, The Reader, and Salon. What made me connect with Nick Bryant, in addition to his bravery, was his advocacy, concern, and heartfelt empathy for children, especially the disadvantaged and challenged. Tonight, we'll be discussing Nick's latest book, The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. And directly from New York City, I would like to introduce Nick Bryant. Hello, Nick, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good, Mel. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Nick, as we always do on this show, because we have two hours, and you have a book that's over 600 pages, I would like to encapsulate as much as we possibly can. Give us some background on what was the moment where you said, I have to do something about this. Well, it's kind of strange. I came about uh, the Franklin scandal in kind of a circuitous route. And uh, if one keeps their mind open, you never really know where it's going to lead you. And uh, I was uh, writing, or I was going to write a story on the occult for uh, Mainstream Magazine. And uh, I started looking into the occult, and uh, I eventually came across a U.S. Customs report on a cult called the Finders. And uh, that, what is conveyed in that customs report is quite ominous. Um, there was a group called the Finders, and they were obviously into some very strange uh, rituals, according to this U.S. Customs report. And there was two Finders and six children, um, really neglected children, in a park in Tallahassee. And uh, some concerned citizens called the Tallahassee Police Department. And um, the Tallahassee Police Department responded to the call, and they found two members of the finders who were well-dressed in a white, they were driving a white van, and there were six kids that were just, they looked really heavily abused. They they looked like ragamuffins, and a social services uh, employee would say that uh, one of the children showed signs of sexual abuse. So the cops didn't, the Tallahassee cops didn't like the looks of this at all. So they uh, took the children in and put them in protective custody, and then they uh, arrested the two finders on uh, multiple charges of child abuse. And there was child pornography in the van, from what I understand, and uh, so they brought in the U.S. Customs Service. So the U.S. Customs Service started to investigate this, and they contacted D.C. police, uh, D.C. Metropolitan Police, um, because the finders basically had a couple of warehouses in Washington, D.C. And, um, and the D.C. police said that they were looking at, they were also looking into the finders for an unsolved murder. And they'd had a, an informant said that, uh, that the finders were performing quote unquote blood rituals with children. So the U.S. Customs report 
or the U.S. Customs Service and the Tallahassee Police Department and then the D.C. Metro Police, um, it was kind of a multi-agency investigation into the finders, and they served a search warrant on the finders and um, on the on the uh, on the two uh, warehouses in uh, downtown D.C. And they found a lot of really shocking uh, information, and actually uh, a lot of pictures of child pornography. And um, there was a full core press by law enforcement to really find out what what the finders were about. And then all of a sudden, the CIA came in and they completely squashed the entire investigation. And uh, and I was thinking to myself uh, when I read it uh, that. Buffalo Springfield uh, line, for what it's worth, uh, came to mind. Um, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. I was wondering, you know, why is the CIA squashing an investigation into a cult that is obviously doing very strange things to children and most likely abusive things to children? So that started me uh, looking for other occurrences of this phenomena around the country. And... Uh, Ultimately, that led me to Nebraska, and uh, and on the internet, there's a tremendous amount of information on Franklin. Uh, a lot of it is wrong, unfortunately. But um, I went to Nebraska, uh, started to look into it. Um, a lot of people were very frightened to talk to me about uh, about it, and um, and actually, I had a death threat. And uh, that kind of sealed the deal for me as far as uh, the uh, authenticity of the story whenever someone gives you a death threat. Um, there's generally something there. There's something that, 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 that needs to be hidden. And um, so that was, I mean, I'd heard a lot of things while I was in Nebraska the first time. I, I've been there 14 times. But I'd heard a lot of, uh, when I was there the first time, I'd talked to people that were, uh, affiliated with the uh, pedophile network that I would eventually end up writing the Franklin scandal about. And um, and I had a tendency to believe a lot of what they were telling me, but then the death threat kind of sanctified it for me that it was real. And Nick, regarding the, the death threats, uh, just when you got there, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, you had an encounter with the police, you were stopped. You... Well, actually, that was downstream. I'd been uh, working okay. on Franklin for about uh, two and a half years at that point, and I was with uh, one of the uh, photographers of the pedophile network. And no, uh, I was hoping that he would find. Uh, he said that he had 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 some pictures stashed, and because uh, I was really having a very hard time getting publishers to believe this. And, um, I mean, it's such an incomprehensible story about the federal government, or at least a corrupt subgenus within the federal government, aiding and abetting child trafficking. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it requires a paradigm shift. And, uh, and I, was, I was just running into uh, like a tsunami of skepticism and cynicism um, when I was pitching this story. So although this photographer was shifty, and um, I, I think that he doesn't have a, you know, an extremely highly developed moral barometer. Um, I thought I'd give it a shot, and uh, he took me on a wild goose chase for pictures, and uh, it resulted in in basically a nothing sandwich. But uh, when I was giving him a ride back to his place, um, we were pulled over, and I was put into a Nebraska State Patrol car, 
and then my uh, my rental car was completely ripped apart. The uh, the the officer actually made me uh, kind of a Vito Corleone offer I couldn't refuse. He said they could search it on the spot, or they could in, uh, arrest us, impound the vehicle, and then search it. So right. I mean, <laughs> I just said, knock yourself out, search it. And I'm very glad that at that point that we did not get any photographs. What they, why did they stop you? And, and because there were more than one patrol cars there afterwards. Uh, what, why did they stop you? And what happened afterwards? What, what, was, uh, what was my uh, offense? Why yes. I was pulled over. I was doing 70 and a 65. <laughs> for the uh, egregious offense of doing 70 and a 65. I was. Did they know it was Nick Bryan who was driving before they stopped you? You you perceive? Um, that's difficult to know. Um, here's what I can tell you is that uh, I got pulled over. I handed him my driver's license and the documentation for the rental vehicle, and the officer just gave it like a cursory glance. Uh, he just, I mean, didn't study it, nothing, and escorted me right into a squad car. And that has never happened to me before. So um, usually uh, they write you a ticket for going 70 and a 65 or whatever. They don't take a look at your documentation and then immediately escort you uh, into a squad car. That That's never happened to me before. I was wearing a, a Joe Boxer t-shirt, uh, khaki shorts, and uh, Nike Super Air Max. So I, you know, I looked like the archetypical uh, upstanding citizen. Right. And, uh, I mean, I think I looked like a pretty average guy. So um, I, was, uh, I was a little perplexed. But given the nature of this story, uh, the Nebraska State Patrol is very dirty in the cover-up of the story. They aided and abetted the FBI um, when covering up the story. So, um, and, and certainly by that point in the investigation, I knew that the Nebraska State Patrol was very dirty. So... Um, what happened to me, um, although it was very frightening, uh, it wasn't surprising. And later in the show, we'll talk about the upward mobility factor here, the scratch my back, scratch your back of the, you know, several entities in the local government in order to cover this up. But let's talk about one person and one institution that are in the epicenter of this story, the Franklin Federal Credit Union and Larry King, not to be confused with CNN's Larry King. Tell us more about that and their political connection and his political connections. Lawrence E. King uh, was born in a uh, blue-collar family in Omaha, Nebraska, a relatively lower socioeconomic family. And uh, he distinguished himself as a singer, um, when he was in high school, and uh, he seemingly came from a relatively normal family, and um, he went into the uh, army or the air force uh, when the Vietnam War was raging. And uh, from what I understand, he was stationed in Thailand. Uh, he was given, uh, uh, according to him, top security clearances, and uh, he, when he got out of uh, the services. He went to work at a bank in Omaha 
And then at a certain point, uh, within a couple of years of him returning from the services, he was uh, appointed the manager of the Franklin Credit Union, which was originally designed to give loans to lower socioeconomic uh, people in North Omaha's uh, uh, depressed, uh, in, in, in North Omaha's very depressed. And, uh, and that's where uh, the Franklin Credit Union was located. And um, so King, ultimately, he was uh, the the Franklin Credit Union basically fronted for this pedophile network that he ran with, uh, according to several sources, uh, someone named Craig Spence, who lived in Washington, D.C. But let me ask you, Nick, how did someone who took classes at the American Banking Institute of Omaha and claimed to have a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Nebraska, when you couldn't even find evidence of such degree, can ascend to the point of getting a job as a credit union general manager and all of a sudden start wearing a $65,000 watch, gets a Corvette, dines in five-star restaurants, travels in limos and Learjets and becomes part owner in many businesses so quickly? Well, uh, that's called uh, embezzlement. <laughs> and I guess having friends in the right place. He basically turned the, the Franklin Credit Union into, uh, it was much more than a boiler room. It was, uh, it was a nuclear reactor. And um, he, it's recorded that he built uh, about uh, $40 million from the credit union. Um, from a hundred thousand that he that was there as assets when he took over. Yes, it was it was hovering at around a hundred thousand, and uh, and when it was um, taken down in 1988, uh, November of 1988, it was supposed to have 2.5 million, but uh, ultimately uh, the feds concluded that uh, 40 million dollars had been stolen. But it's difficult to know the exact amount of money that had been stolen because there's the, the, there's so much of this story that is corrupt and shrouded in mystery. But, uh, but uh, the federal government did conclude that uh, King had embezzled around $40 million from the Franklin Credit Union. And another interesting fact was that FDIC credit unions were required to be audited every year. Yes. Yet the Franklin Credit Union had not been audited for four years, and whenever auditors would show up, Larry King would, would yell, phone Washington. He would get on the phone, and the auditors would leave. Where was he getting all this money to support his lifestyle when just a short time before, as I said, only $100,000 were declared assets of this credit union? Well, I think... It really uh, is very helpful to have friends in high places. And um, I, with the, uh, the, the savings and loan institutions, uh, I, I read a book about that and how a number of them were broken out. And all that required was phone calls to get auditors uh, off the backs of uh, people who are running the savings and loans, who are plundering the savings and loans. And uh, King right. was serving a vital a vital service, and uh, he was flying kids from coast to coast and pandering them to rich and powerful individuals, and certainly a number of individuals uh, at Washington, D.C. King rented a townhouse in Washington, D.C. It cost him about $5,000 a month in uh, $1980, um, and he also uh, had a partner who had a house in Washington, D.C. named Craig Spence, 
And uh, they ran with the shakers and the movers of the GOP and of national politics. And they provided uh, children and uh, other things to people with tremendous power and in this country. So, uh, so literally, I believe, was protected uh, by, by his friends. He got by with a little help from his friends. Where did the early allegations of pandering network, of the pandering network, originate? Well, from what I can tell, um, that network had been operational since at least 1980. Um, the, I interviewed a victim who said that he had been uh, flown around starting in 1980. And, um, and then... The, and then I also interviewed a, another victim that said he'd been flown around uh, up until 1988. So I think that that network was operational through most of the 80s. But the first kid that came forward, uh, her name was Ulysse Washington, and um, she was in a, in, a, in a really brutal foster care home. Um, this foster care home had uh, about 10 kids, and... Uh, the people that ran the foster care home were really, really sick, demented people. And uh, they were getting money for all the kids. Um, and, uh, I mean, lots of money for all these kids. And they were starving these kids. They were beating these kids. Um, two of the kids were molested, too, that I know of. And um, she was ultimately... Uh, and. The woman, uh, there was a couple that ran this foster care home. Uh, one was Barbara Webb, and that was a cousin of Larry King's. And Ulysse uh, says that she was pandered out to King in 1984, that she was flown to uh, to Chicago and also to New York, and uh, there were pedophilic parties there. And, um, and then that, and there were other kids on the plane. Now, she was liberated from that uh, foster care home in uh, in 1986, and um, and she had a foster care mother who uh, who is very nice to her, very loving woman, and um, and Ulysse eventually opened up about uh, because she had been repeatedly molested by Barbara Webb's uh, husband Jarrett Webb, and uh, and then. She uh, and then the foster mother uh, took her to uh, made it lodge a complaint with the Nebraska State Patrol, and Ulysse passed a polygraph, and uh, on on her abuse and no charges were filed against the Webs whatsoever. And at this point, it had come out that the Webs were beating the kids with rubber hoses and starving the kids. And uh, I mean, there, there's just there's reams of documentation on all this. I mean, I collected reams of documentation from social services and, um, the webs were never, ever charged with, uh, with child abuse. So, uh, in 1986, uh, Ulysse got to trust her foster mother, her second foster mother enough. So, uh, she told her foster mother after she told her foster mother that she'd been molested by Jared Webb, she also told her foster mother that uh, she had been flown around. And, um, and then uh, at a certain point, the foster mother uh, realized that the law enforcement was just paralyzed when it came to, um, 
this house that that there was this all this documentation of physical abuse there was uh, this documentation of sexual abuse Ulysse had passed a polygraph uh, and nothing had happened and Ulysse said that she was flown around with Boys Town students Boys Town is the distinguished Catholic orphanage in uh, outside of Omaha Nebraska so sure. um, Ulysse's foster mother knew uh, someone who worked at Boys Town and um, and the Boys Town youth worker uh, met with Ulysse and her foster mother on three occasions and the uh, Boys Town youth worker penned like a 50-page report that I have and uh, where Ulysse basically talks about the abuse in the Webb household and then being flown to these various parties by uh, by Lawrence King. And just so that the listeners know, if they hear the, the, the name Boystown and they don't know, Boystown is probably the world's most famous orphanage founded by Father Edward Flanagan in 1917. Now, this is very important. More than inactivity, I want you to discuss the unwillingness of law enforcement to investigate the early allegations. Oh, it was, uh, well, the uh, early on, it was the... Law enforcement was completely paralyzed. Uh, they, they did nothing. I mean, there were no charges. But then um, social services got wind of this, some some people in the upper echelon of Nebraska social services. And um, they contacted both federal and state law enforcement. And, 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 and both federal and state law enforcement did absolutely nothing. And then another kid came forward and said that she had been involved in a pedophile ring and that she'd been uh, fodder for uh, kitty porn. And she named Lawrence King, too. And there was, I guess, uh, um, although I don't have their names, some other kids that had come forward. So social services collected this corroboration that Lawrence King um, was integral to this pedophile network, this child pornography network, and uh they did not, act, law enforcement did not act at all, at all. And, um, and these, uh, these, so, these high-ranking social service personnel, were, they, they were just shocked that, uh, that law enforcement wasn't listening to them. That was, they were just ignoring them. I mean, both state and federal law enforcement. And um, the Omaha Police Department had actually sent an officer to interview, um, not Ulysse, but the second girl that came forward and uh he found her to be credible and um but she was never interviewed again and um so basically and, and Ulysse was never interviewed uh by law enforcement so uh so both these kids are coming forward with really uh horrific allegations concerning child trafficking and child pornography and only one of them gets interviewed once so um Something has seriously gone awry um, concerning law enforcement and child protection in Nebraska. In this case, for who sure. do you th- who do, who do you think was stopping the the say the, the, the second interview, if you will, that never took place? Um, it's really difficult to know who uh, stopped the second interview, but um, the FBI had started to intervene at this point. And so did the uh, Justice Department. And um, 
the FBI, with uh, at least in D.C. or at least in Nebraska, they were behind the scenes pulling the strings, and um, and as the Franklin scandal unfolds, the reader will see how the FBI became more and more proactive. Um, what what happened in this situation? What started to break this open was. Um, a, a state legislative, uh, a, a number of Nebraska state senators formed a committee to look into the embezzlement because they felt there there had been some other Nebraska banks that had been uh, plundered or, or savings and loans that had been plundered, and they thought that there was an, there was some kind of endemic uh, corruption within the uh, state's banking system, and they and they decided that they were going to look into the Franklin Credit Union, and uh, but it. it, it it was just it just started because they couldn't understand how someone could uh, build a a credit union that was supposed to have two point five million dollars of total assets for forty million dollars and how it hadn't been audited in four years. I mean they just they couldn't understand this. So they just started looking at finance. This legislative committee started looking at financial improprieties, but then the social service uh, personnel went to these senators and said, there's something really ominous going on here. This is just not about financial impropriety. This is about an a interstate pedophile network um, where children are being flown around. So at that point, this legislative committee called the Franklin Committee started looking into uh, the child abuse allegations and child trafficking allegations, too. So this continued to snowball, and as you say, a committee was formed, the Franklin Committee, which was willing to investigate the child abuse allegations. Was this another Warren Commission or 9-11 Commission, or was this really seeking justice? No, they were really uh, seeking justice. The senators uh, there were really, really seeking justice. And um, and as soon as they, uh, they started looking at the child abuse allegations, the FBI and... Uh, um, the Nebraska State Patrol and the Omaha Police Department came out and said that the allegations had been thoroughly investigated and there was no child abuse. And uh, as I said before, one um, victim had been interviewed once. So they, I mean, they just told a boldface lie about that. And then um, when it did, when the Franklin Committee did start to uh, to, to pick up steam, and 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 it was decided uh, the these state senators uh, were really determined to get to the bottom of this. Um, then the FBI, then the FBI really rears its head. I mean, then it gets ugly uh, for the victims. I mean, the FBI really uh, badgered these victims, these these first two victims that came forward. I mean, very malicious, very malicious tactics. And um, and there, there was a tremendous amount of pressure put on the Franklin Committee to back away from uh, the child abuse allegations uh, once the FBI said that they'd thoroughly investigated the child abuse allegations and that they weren't real, they weren't authentic, that these kids were fabricating this. And um, but these uh, state senators uh, didn't listen to the law enforcement. They were they had become very dubious of law enforcement at this point. So they continued with their investigation. And not surprisingly, mysterious deaths started to occur. So let's talk about a key individual before we continue talking about the victims. A key individual, Gary Caradori, a private investigator assigned by Nebraska state legislators to be the lead investigators to look into the abuse allegations. What happened to Gary two weeks before the grand jury report came? 
Well, what happened was um, the uh, Franklin Committee eventually hired uh, Gary Cardori, who was an amazing investigator, um, uh, truly an amazing and gifted investigator. He had a large investigative firm that had like about 100 employees. And uh, he started looking to it, and he found uh, four more victims that were willing to come forward. The FBI at this point had tapped his phones, and uh, they had tapped other people's phones. I mean, anybody that um, was looking into this, uh, I think, had their phones tapped. And um, as Gary started to find victims, uh, the FBI came in, got really heavy with victims. But uh, Gary Caridori got four more victims to come forward. And uh, so at this point, you've got six victims uh, basically saying the same thing, that uh, that they're part of this pedophile network. Um, and that uh, and that Larry King is the uh, the leading pedophilic pimp. So you've got six victims now. And uh, now Gary Caridori uh, videotaped for the the four victims that he found. Um, just to uh, so um, that people could see that these kids weren't fabricating these stories. I mean, these you can go to my website. Uh, uh, the form of my website, and you, and you can see some of uh, Gary Caridori's videotaped interviews, and um, and so he videotaped uh, the kids that he interviewed, and um, and the state senators of the Franklin Committee uh, gave the tapes to local and federal law enforcement, and they said, you know, how come you guys didn't find any of these kids, you know, on on a relatively low budget, and with one investigator, we found additional victims. And um, so at that point, uh, the uh, Omaha is in Douglas County. The uh, Douglas County uh, judges called for a uh, grand jury to be impaneled to look into the child abuse allegations. And, um, and then that grand jury, um, there were two grand juries in Nebraska that looked into the child abuse allegations. There was a federal grand jury, and then there was a state grand jury, and they were both shams. Um, I've acquired the sealed, the vast majority of the sealed testimony and exhibits of the state grand jury. And in my book, I just show what a complete miscarriage of justice and what a sham that grand jury was. A lot of people don't know about grand juries. Um, they think that uh, like grand juries have the seal of uh, God on them, that they're some kind of pristine um, vehicle that uh, American justice uses to, to indict criminals. And, and that can be true, but a grand jury is only as good as the special prosecutor that's been appointed to prosecute that grand jury. Um, the special prosecutor of a grand jury basically calls all the witnesses and shows um, all the exhibits that he deems is relevant. And the grand jurors are just regular citizens that have been called in for, like, jury duty. So a special prosecutor of a grand jury is in, a, is in an amazing position to uh, sway grand jurors' thoughts one way or the other. Um, there was a uh, New York judge who said that a special prosecutor of a grand jury could get a grand juror's Get, could get grand jurors to indict a ham sandwich. And, uh, and in that case, this is very true, um, because this state grand jury was, was really a sham. And uh, it exonerated all the uh, perpetrators, and uh, it indicted two victims. Um, because but when you say, uh, Nick, when you say it's a sham, please explain. 
where these people were chosen because of their, their views against the case or in favor? Why is it a sham? No, no. The, the, the grand jurors, I mean, what happened with that grand jury, it lasted four months. And the special prosecutor of that grand jury presented truth, lies, and falsehoods to these grand jurors. Uh, okay. it, it, I mean, at one point, the special prosecutor called it like a schizophrenic to the stand who knew nothing about child abuse or wasn't connected to uh, the Franklin scandal at all. Um, and he demanded that the, uh, he said that the uh, FDA had been infiltrated by KGB agents and demanded justice. <laughs> I mean, just stuff like this. So after four months, these grand jurors are just so confused and so exhausted that uh, they'll sign off on just about anything. And, sure. Uh, and, and, that, and that's ultimately what happened. It's almost like an extraordinary rendition. They, yes. they just break the person, and the person just says whatever they want him to say. So obviously this was done as part of the cover-up, Nick, right? Yes, yes. The, the grand jury, uh, that grand jury was pivotal to the, to the cover-up of this uh, pedophile network. Now, tell us once again what happened to Gary Caradori two weeks before the, the, the report from the jury, the grand jury, came out. What happened there was uh, Gary Caradori um, was saw that the FBI. I mean, he had he was bumping heads with the feds. Um, he knew that the FBI had tapped his phones. Uh, the FBI had uh, threatened him. Um, the FBI had served um, with a subpoena. Um, I mean, he knew that there was a cover-up going down. And, uh, and he knew that his head was on the chopping block, that they were going to um, probably try to make a case against him for fabricating these child abuse uh, allegations. And uh, he decided that uh, he had to get pictures um, because all the victims that he had talked to said that they had been photographed um, and uh, in, you know, they had been fodder for uh, kitty porn. So um, he located um, one of the uh, network's photographers who the FBI had flushed out of um, Nebraska. His name is uh, Rusty Nelson. And uh, Rusty Nelson agreed to meet Gary Caridori in Chicago. Uh, Gary Caridori. Wasn't he the one that was driving with you when you were pulled up by the cops? Yes. Very same man. Okay. And so uh, now... To take Rusty Nelson's story at face value is difficult uh, because Rusty is prone to fabrication. But um, I have, in addition to Rusty Nelson, I have four other corroborations that Gary Caridori came by pictures while he was in Chicago. He ostensibly went to Chicago to, uh, he, to take his son to the All-Star game. He had an eight-year-old son. And um, and they did go to the All-Star game, but he did meet, I believe that he did meet Rusty Nelson. Um, he called a reporter in Washington, D.C., um, because Franklin is like a big spider web, and it definitely, uh, Washington, D.C. is an integral part of Franklin. And, uh, we'll, and we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit later. But uh, he called a reporter in D.C. that was looking into this and said that he was about to get pictures. And then he called the head of the uh, Franklin Committee and said that we got them. And then uh, he called his wife. And he told his wife that he'd be meeting Rusty Nelson in uh, Chicago. And he called his wife. And he had to be cryptic uh, when he called Nebraska because he knew that these phones would be tapped. But he said it, his, his wife said, how was it? And Gary said, uh, 
uh, Kiridori said, uh, you know, it was it was a good trip. I I got what I came for. And uh, he also called the mother of one of the victims, who was experiencing a tremendous amount of um, difficulties because she wouldn't recant her abuse. And the FBI basically uh, was just applying a lot of pressure to her and and her family. And uh, Gary Kiridori told this victim's mother that uh, the mother would be the happiest mother in the world upon his return to Nebraska. So I have uh, four corroborations that Gary Caridori came by uh, pictures in uh, Chicago, and uh, but he never made it back to Nebraska. His plane inexplicably uh, broke up over uh, Lee County, Illinois. Um, he left about one fifty in the morning, and uh, the plane scattered over eighteen hundred feet. An 1,800 feet radius over a cornfield. So do you suspect that uh, there was a bomb inside of the plane? Well, it's uh, it's really fishy. I mean, um, in my book, I get into the uh, the plane crash quite a bit. And um, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of really anomalous occurrences with, I mean, planes generally don't break up. Um I mean, they're designed to withstand a lot of uh, G's, and they generally don't break up, and right. uh, especially uh, Piper Saratogas, and um, and the uh, the farmer uh, where who owned whose land the plane was scattered over uh, heard uh, local law enforcement talking, saying that, the, you know, that they had to get the FBI involved. Now the FBI said that they were never involved because there wasn't any signs of malfeasance. And then, um, and then the, uh, lab that w- was supposed to, to do the uh, blood work on the, on Caridori and his son, um, was in, it was inexplicably non-functional. So the blood samples, uh, like carbon di- dioxide and that type of, uh, plasma, sampling uh was sent to washington dc so um and now the news reported that he had called in a may day uh before he died before the plane broke up um but then the uh national transportation safety board said that there was no may day so um and gary caridori by uh by all accounts was a very excellent pilot so uh that and considering that he had, by 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 five sources, um, had he came by pictures in Chicago, um, that whole uh, his his plane breaking up and him dying um, was was just a. I mean, that whole thing is just there's just too many uh, there's too many coincidences there, too many anomalies. Absolutely. That's why I wanted to focus on this part, because I think this this was critical. He had information that could have turned the table. And this next part reminds me of John Hinckley, the patsy that was used for President Reagan's assassination attempt in 1981. Hinckley's family was linked to the vice president, George H.W. Bush, and even Bush's son, Neil, was scheduled to have dinner with John Hinckley's brother the night before. Then John Hinckley was declared mentally incompetent and would not face trial. In this case, 
It may sound irrelevant, but in this case, Larry King was also declared incompetent to stand trial and was committed to a federal mental facility so he would not be called to testify before the grand juries investigating his pandering network. I just can't believe, Nick, that someone with so much influence and connections in the highest places and a rapidly ascending member of the Republican Party would all of a sudden be declared mentally incompetent. If this wasn't a legal loophole, I don't know what else is. Tell us more about this. Well, it's kind of, it's, that's kind of amazing. Um, King had uh, said that George Herbert Walker Bush was a close personal friend of his. And uh, King had certainly gone to bat for him uh, at the uh, uh, National uh, Republican Convention in New Orleans in 1988. Uh, King and Jack Kemp made a, a video that uh, extolled blacks to, uh, to vote for George Herbert Walker Bush. So there was a lot of connection between um, King and various members of the Bush administration. Uh, uh, King's uh, uh, Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, Samuel Pierce, uh, there's connections there. There's connections with Kemp. Um, there's a lot of connections uh between uh, King and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Now, the day that George Herbert Walker Bush was uh, holding a fundraising breakfast in uh, in Nebraska is the day that Secret Service just kind of scooped King up and took him before a magistrate. And without any preemptive motion from uh, King's attorneys or the state, uh, the state's prosecutors um, said that he needed to go to Springfield to, for a mental health evaluation. I mean, huh. just just like scooped him up, took him before this magistrate, and this magistrate has done some other things too um, to cover up Franklin, and now he's a sitting U.S. District Court judge. So uh, he was one of the uh, the many officers of the court that was given a promotion uh, after Franklin. Nick, who was the FBI? trying to protect here. I say this because the FBI intimidated the victims who came forward. The FBI, um, I think the FBI was protecting two things. Uh, the FBI was protecting some very powerful politicians. And I also think that the FBI was protecting a very corrupt political system um, that's predicated on blackmail. I think, and, and that's actually willing to use children to uh, satiate the needs of uh, powerful people and politicians that have pedophilic inclinations. I think if the American people had gotten wind of not only the blackmail, but that, uh, that children were being used, um, that would have sparked so much outrage and 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 vitriol from the American people. I mean, it, Franklin was something that uh, the toothpaste uh, with Gary Caridori started to come out of the tube, and uh, and it had to be put back in. And and they put it back in. And it's very hard to get toothpaste back in the tube once it's out, but, uh, but the federal government spent a tremendous amount of money to get the uh, toothpaste back in the tube. This Frank had a very strong connection to D.C., obviously, to those around the world. I mean, the capital of the United States. And we have people from all over the world listening to us, uh, Nick, the District of Columbia. It had a blackmail angle covered up in D.C. Can you elaborate? Yes. Um, according to uh, five sources in my book, um, 
Lawrence King ran this pedophile network with uh, Craig Spence. Craig Spence was all, was like King. He was he was a Republican power broker, a GOP power broker, and uh, he had a house in Washington D.C. A very in a very upscale neighborhood in Washington D.C. that was wired for audiovisual blackmail, and um, and a lot of these uh, pedophilic parties would go down in Spence's house. Let's just make sure that everybody knows that King was the Democrat until he started making money. No, King is uh, King is a Republican. But yes, but he was. I read that he was a Democrat. Yes, he he, he at one point he, yes at one point he was a Democrat. And he changed when he started making money. He uh, switched his affiliation. He was uh, he supported McGovern. And exactly, then, and then uh, and then at a certain point he became uh, he became a, a, a Republican. Correct. And uh, please continue. And then uh, the house that was that was owned by Craig Spence was definitely blackmail. Uh, I mean, it was uh, definitely wired for blackmail, and uh, and a lot of powerful people would party at this house. Now, I'll give you a name of some of the people, the names of some of the people that uh, partied at uh, Craig Spence's place. Now, I'm not saying that. All of them are compromised, but I'm, I'm just I'm just kind of going to give you the kind of uh, people that 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 who the, the kind of literati and and power figures that uh, Craig Spence uh, attracted. Um, as far as journalists, Eric Severide, Ted Koppel, William Sapphire um, went to uh, Craig Spence's place. Um, Ted Koppel, the the newsman. Yes, Ted Koppel, the newsman. Okay. And um, former Attorney Generals Elliot Richardson and uh, um, Nixon's uh, Attorney General um, John Mitchell also uh, went to Spence's place. And then, uh, and then you had like uh, Lieutenant General Daniel uh, Graham, an expert on the Strategic Defense Initiative. Um, you had CIA officials like uh, William Casey and uh, Ray Klein, who was the former uh, deputy director of the intelligence agency. And you had, uh, you had powerful senators like John Glenn of Ohio and uh, Frank Murkowski of, uh, of uh, Alaska. I mean, uh, and various U.S. attorneys. I mean, uh, Spence's place was like a magnet for the rich and the powerful. Now, I'm not saying that everyone that I just named is compromised, but uh, what would happen at Spence's place, a lot of times it would just start out as a straight political function. And uh, where there would be a number of powerful people that would be invited, and uh, and they would be talking politics, and it would be like just... Uh, another Washington, D.C. power broker uh, cocktail party. And then maybe around 10.30, 11, 11.30, uh, someone would either fire up a joint or break out a line of cocaine or there would be something sexually inappropriate done. And uh, the people that were, you know, appalled by that would, would leave. But you have to keep in mind that they were lubricated on alcohol at this point. So, uh, but, but then the people that, uh, and their defenses were down, but then the people that wanted to stick around, um, and party, I mean, they would be provided with anything. I mean, they would be provided with children. If you wanted a young woman in her twenties, you'd be provided with a young woman in her twenties. If you wanted a young man in his twenties, you'd be provided with a young man in his twenties. I mean, um, whatever you wanted, uh, and whatever drug you wanted, you'd, you'd also be provided with, uh, Spence himself was a, uh, uh, 
a pedophile. He liked little boys, and uh, he liked uh, cocaine and crack cocaine. Now, you mentioned that the house was wired for blackmail. Yes. Tell me what you mean by this, because if I understand correctly, does this mean that this is used so that you could film, record the people who are coming so that you basically can own them in the future and have them do whatever you want to do or else you can show the evidence? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, now, Spence said that his house was wired by friendly intelligence agents, And there was, uh, I eventually got um, someone to talk to me who ran a, a large escort service and actually spent, Spence spent about $20,000 a month um, um, renting escorts from this gentleman. And uh, he told me that, um, and, and he was very privy to what Spence was up to. Um, he'd seen the blackmail equipment and he'd been, and Spence had told him that the CIA had in, installed the uh, the blackmail equipment. Um, and uh, the Washington Times did find corroboration that Spence was, in fact, a CIA asset. So, um, so although I can prove that the FBI and the Department of Justice covered up this pandering network, I, I really can't prove that it was directly a CIA operation, but, uh, but a lot of things point to the CIA. Um, In, on, at least on the Washington, D.C. side of things. And just recently, of course, we'll remember the governor, former governor, Elliot Spitzer, and what happened to him and the prostitute. It's, uh, you know, some people say that he had something that was going to be affecting a major banking institution. I'll go ahead and say it, Bank of America. All of a sudden, this comes out. We have to take a break, folks. This is so, I don't want to use the word fascinating, but it's so revealing. And I've been telling the audience, Nick, that this is probably one of the most, I don't want to use the word radioactive, one of the most dangerous shows I have ever done, just because we have to speak for the voiceless. A lot of children, and this is the part that we're going to be talking about in the next segment. We're going to be talking about the children that have died, the children that have been corrupted, sold. The rabbit hole goes deeper than you think. So, Nick, tell us, how do we get in touch with your great book? Um, you can go to my website, uh, www.franklinscandal.com, and uh, there's a forum there. And uh, But you can also order the book through my website, www.franklinscandal.com. And we have a link on our website. It's a great book. It's lengthy, but Nick, you have a lot of information there, and you've included government documentation, a lot of information. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. <laughs>